All right, so we continue this uh, series in just a moment on uh, the heart of Christianity. But first, just want to remind you uh, who we are as a church. So uh, we are a progressive alternative, which is a little different way of approaching uh, the Bible, creeds, all that stuff. And uh, as you can see here, Jesus' goal was God's goal, which is therefore our goal, uh, which has everything to do with these words on the bottom, resurrection, renewal, restoration, reinvigoration, uh, bringing uh, what is in heaven onto earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And the way we choose to do this and the way we structure our ministry here is and the movements that we see in Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of John, where it's laid out pretty clear. Uh, Jesus was a lifelong learner, and so we want to follow in that and stretch our thinking about everything. Uh, Jesus was one who knelt in service, and we want to do that for anybody and everybody. Uh, Jesus was one that stood for grace and justice. They're really two uh, of the same thing. Uh, grace is on an individual level, and grace expressed on a macro level is called justice. And so uh, we want to be about that with what we're doing. Jesus broke away repeatedly uh, for his own personal connection with God, and so we want to be a part of that. Worship's a part of that. And then this final piece is incarnate, and that has to do with community. Uh, the gospel and everything with the Jewish tradition was never me, myself, and I. It was always a we proposition. We're doing this thing in community. And so we want to pour into these things because we think that when we do, we'll experience those things that uh, God uh, has in store for us and has in mind for us. So that's what we're about. So uh, now I want to jump into uh, the teaching today. And before we do, t talking about teaching, um, I know I see Will Nesbitt in the back, and uh, I don't know if Katie is able to be here today, but if not, then please extend our congratulations because Will's wife, Katie, was uh, celebrated as the Teacher of the Year in Napa Valley Unified. So that's awesome. Well done. And I'm sure Will will take no credit for that. So fantastic. Good, good man. Good man. All right. So today we're talking about faith, the way of the heart, and uh, you may not realize it, but you are a people of faith. Did you know that? Even if you do not call yourself religious, you are people of faith. Uh, you had trust when you went, or you had faith last night when you went to bed that the sun was going to come up this morning uh, and that you would rise to the occasion. Uh, you had faith that uh, when you turned on the spigots and flushed the toilet that things were going to work appropriately. <laughs> uh, when you went down to your coffee maker, you were having faith that it would work as it was supposed to. When you put on your clothes, you had faith that they would fit. And secondly, uh, that they would stay on uh, for the duration of uh, as long as you're wearing them. And that's a good thing. When you came to church today, that was a tremendous act of faith. Uh, I see Dave uh, riding his bike around, time, uh, around town quite a bit, and he crosses this intersection up here, right, as you leave in the church property and stuff. And I think it takes faith just to cross that intersection uh, because that's a, that's a frightening uh, one when people are on their phone and looking the other way and all that stuff. Uh, we're people of faith in many ways, but what does faith mean? And that's what we're looking at today. Uh, this is chapter 2 in Borg's book, uh, The Heart of Christianity. I'm going to review a lot of what he says and add a couple things uh, as well. And I just want to say that if you're interested in taking this deeper, uh, each session is a standalone session. So if you want to go deeper with this this week, show up at 7 o'clock here, uh, right here literally, uh, on Tuesday night or noon uh, in my office. And you're welcome to come and just be a part of that. So let's see what's going on. I'm going to introduce you to what is called uh, the Hall of Fame of Faith. This is in Hebrews chapter 11. 
and it recounts some of the great, I've, actually I'm only giving you a portion of it, but it recounts some of the great uh, people in our faith tradition, particularly in the Jewish tradition. By an act of faith, Abraham said yes to God's call to, to travel to an unknown place that would become his home. When he left, he had no idea where he was going. By an act of faith, he lived in the country promised him, lived as a stranger camping in tents. Isaac and Jacob did the same, his sons, his son and grandson, living under the same promise. Abraham did it by keeping his eye on an unseen city with real eternal foundations, the city designed and built by God, a dream of the future. By faith, barren Sarah, that was his wife, was able to become pregnant, old woman as she was at the time, because she believed the one who made a promise would do what he had said. That's how it happened. Oh, I love this line coming up. That's how it happened that from one man's dead and shriveled loins, <clears throat> yes, there are now people numbering into the millions. <laughs> that alone is why I wanted to use this translation. <laughs> Thank you, Eugene Peterson. All right, each one of these people of faith died not yet having in hand what was promised, but still believing. How did they do it? They saw it way off in the distance, waved their greeting, and accepted the fact that they were transients in this world. People who live this way <clears throat> make it plain that they are looking for their true home. If they were homesick for the old country, uh, they would have gone back any time they wanted. But they were after a far better country than that heaven country. You can see why God was so proud of them and has a city waiting for them. And now I'm going to take a moment to cough. from uh, hay fever right now. So this may or may not help. We'll see. Maybe the shortest sermon I ever preach, which wouldn't that be great. So I'm going to go over uh, these uh, four ideas about what faith is, because the question is, is, is the faith that we're living in the faith that we see in the Bible that we just talked about? And I'm just going to answer that for you real quick. For the most part, no. The faith that we just read about in the Bible is not the faith that most of us think about when we think of the word faith. And I want to unpack that with you. So we're going to take a look at uh, four different renderings of faith. Faith as a census, which is an ascent. Faith as fiducia, which is trust. Faith as fidelitas, which is faithfulness. And faith as visio, which is vision. Let's see what we got here. This is the one that we are most familiar with. Faith as a census or ascent. This faith as belief, that is, giving one's mental assent to a proposition as believing a claim or statement is true. A propositional understanding of faith, this is the dominant meaning in the Western world today. It's all about right beliefs versus wrong beliefs. Uh, it's about, this is a quote from the book, faith is what you turn to when beliefs and knowledge conflict. So, if you are a literalist and you believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, and you read that God created the world and everything else, and six literal days, even though science is telling you that's probably inaccurate and lots of ways that we can help us understand that, if you really double down on this, then what you're saying is, I got to have faith when all my brains tell me uh, that it's just not so. That's how a lot of people have been raised to believe what faith is. Even though it doesn't make sense, we pull out the mystery card and say, well, I just got to trust that it's true. So lots of stories in the Bible uh, need that mystery card in order for us to, to make it work. And that's a, that's a complicated thing. And, but that's how a lot of people in the Western world have thought about it. 
The opposite of, uh, of belief then in this way, assent would be disbelief, which is often viewed as sinful uh, in our world. Um, to go a little bit further with this, just to push this a little bit, and I'm going to come back around to this at the very end and uh, give you one redeeming thing about this assent thing. But I want to ask you the question, what kind of God would make this the primary uh, function of faith? That you just sign off on a belief statement. I mean, what, what would the purpose of that be? And how cruel would it be? If that's, and how small would that be? If all you have to do is say yes to a certain number of propositions, why does that matter? And to a God who seems to be uh, expand, continually creating, expanding the universe, all this stuff, if it's coming from God's heart in that way, why would it narrow down to just a few statements that we say, I believe in X, Y, and Z? It seems very, very small. Uh, Borg goes on to say, when you think about it, faith as belief is relatively impotent, relatively powerless. You can believe all the right things and still be in bondage, be miserable, unchanged. Believing a set of claims to be true has very little transforming power. Right? So we know statistically uh, that a lot of people agree with Borg. Because there are a lot of people uh, in the Western world, and particularly in the United States, who have faith and claim they have faith in Christ. And yet, most people view the church and Christianity and their Christians uh, in a very jaded way. As judgmental, as unthinking, unkind, anti-fill-in-the-blank of many things not willing to be inclusive, um, not willing to be egalitarian in things, uh, pro-war, uh, pro-capital punishment, anti-abortion, anti-choice, anti-gay marriage, the whole thing. That's how we are looked at uh, with this one writ large with uh, Christianity capital C in the United States. And I would suggest to you that one of the reasons why we're here where we are is because the church, capital C, about 400 years ago, took a wrong turn with what it means to believe. And with our logical thinking, with the Enlightenment and scientific revolution and all that, we kind of threw everything else out the window and just decided it's all about what we can control and think about with our minds. And we made faith the same thing. And we greatly missed the whole point of what this whole thing is about. So like I said, I'm going to come back and redeem this uh, in a bit. Uh, but for now, just, just want you to be aware, is this, is this how it was taught to you? Uh, maybe some of you uh, were dropped off at, at church and your parents went on to get coffee and their thought was, well, we just want our kid to get religious education. We just want them to get the facts down so they know what's going on. Any of you kind of that kind of a deal? Uh, some of you are parents like that <laughs> who just dropped the kid off and I hope it all works uh, so they can get this. This is a very common uh, reality for people. In fact, uh, when we talk to some parents, if they've not really thought this through, not so much at Crosswalk because usually people come to Crosswalk for different reasons, but that, re that need to know the religious dogma is a really important thing to people. And there's a place for knowing the stories, don't get me wrong. And I grew up in church, and I know the stories, and I'm grateful that I do. But the point is not to know the stories. There's something bigger. There's not going to be a test on putting the patriarchs in order uh, when, you know, pass on from this life. That's, thank God, you know, you're, you're not going to be 
forced to read name all the books of the Bible but if you're worried about that there's a really clever song that can help you with that so we can maybe teach that to you so if it's not that if it's not mental ascent and it was something much deeper than that and richer than that before well what else is there and so for that word faith um, oh I won't get there. I, I, man, I want, to, I want to chase a rabbit, but I'm not going to do it. So um, there's another word for faith uh, called uh, fiducia. Um, we think about this as a, a word for trust. And this is sort of like trusting gravity, trusting that there's a reality present that's with us. So I give you a bunch of examples here, trusting God like floating in a deep ocean. Uh, Kierkegaard, uh, one of the most influential um, Christian thinkers in the last century uh, talked about um, you know when you are thrown into an ocean uh, and you're not a great swimmer uh, you're, you're nor or if you've ever taught a kid how to swim uh, your normal reaction is just to flail about and try to not sink but the more you flail about the more likely you are to sink but if you trust the buoyancy of the ocean and relax a little bit you're gonna become more buoyant uh, are there any swim instructors here today? Am I right about that? I'm kind of right about that. Uh, so it's trusting in the buoyancy of the ocean. It's trusting God as foundation, our ground of being. It's trusting God as flowing wind towards shalom. That we're just, count we're just counting on that there's something else going on in the world uh, that is pushing, moving, wooing us toward better things, not worse things. Uh, it's trusting God like a child with a healthy parent. That's like trusting God as presence, host, holder, residence, provider of unitive experiences, the mystical stuff. It's trusting God as our destination and our weaver. And what I mean by that is uh, that we trust that the one who gives us life, the, the origin of life, the source of life, uh, is where we're headed. Uh, we're going to end up in those arms someday. But then the beautiful thing um, that we see, and this certainly is attested to in Scripture, is that God works even with the ugliest stuff of our lives uh, to weave them into something beautiful. Sometimes all we see is the back of the tapestry, and it just looks like a big hairy mess. Uh, but on the other side of that, um, there's a weaving that's happening, especially if we'll flow with it, that can take us to some beautiful places even though life sometimes feels unbearable. And at the time, we're like, there is nothing good uh, that can come from this. Sometimes it's those hardest times uh, that bring out some of our richest experiences in life. In fact, uh, I would probably guess that if you thought about the things that changed your life the most and helped you learn the most, it wasn't the, the high points in celebration, it was the struggles that you went through. It's not that we want the struggles, but there is a trust here that God is going to work with those struggles to do something uh, redemptive uh, with them. Uh, the opposite of this is mistrust leading to worry. Uh, Borg kind of goes a little bit too far, I think, in his chapter on this. Maybe we'll cover this in the week. Uh, but he uses the word uh, anxiety and don't be anxious for anything. And he goes so far as to say, if you have faith like this, you can live life without anxiety. And I've had people, you know, really push back on that and say, well, anxiety is an actual condition people struggle with. And maybe it's not about faith. Uh, maybe that's not the right way to say it. And I fully agree. Uh, but what we can say is that this kind of faith that uh, things are flowing in a certain direction uh, can give us a sense of peace sometimes. 
and sometimes uh, even apart from understanding. Another way to think about this trust about God's work in the world, especially when we look at things that, you know, in our time frame are not, are not getting better fast enough. Uh, how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, a lot of you. Very good. Uh, so you've seen this thing, and you are aware that just 50 years ago, the Grand Canyon did not exist. Of course, that's false, right? It was over many, many, many thousands of years that the Colorado River kept on taking earth and taking earth and taking earth. Having faith in God is like trusting the movement of water uh, to change the landscape. And if you think about that historically, while there have been moments where we've gone three steps forward and maybe three or four steps backwards, um, the trajectory is still moving toward beauty. Uh, things are better now than they were many centuries ago. People are living longer than they were many centuries ago. There are more rights for more people today than there were many years ago. Now, unfortunately, we also still have slavery with us in different forms today. And I'm not 100% sure on this, but Pam, is it higher today than it has been in history, just different forms of slavery? So we still have a lot of work to go through uh, even, though, um, even though we think that because it's not the same form we had here in America necessarily that it's gone. Now, you've heard the saying, uh, the, um, the arc of history uh, leans towards justice or is bent towards justice. Uh, usually Martin Luther King uh, gets credit for that, but he was actually quoting a guy who was preaching about getting rid of slavery um, almost a century before he said it himself. And an interesting thing about this, uh, this idea of the arc of history bending toward justice uh, for all, is that it needs somebody to do the bending. So if we want justice to happen faster, then it needs people who are sensing that wave of God and wanting to have justice for everybody, a grace for the individual, but justice for all, literally, so there's genuine equality. Then it's like people like you and I need to be the ones who are helping bend that arc uh, more toward history. Uh, I believe that God's wind and flow is heading in that direction, but if we want to see it sooner than later, then it's not going to happen by just sitting around. We've got to do our part to say yes to that, to that invitation, to join God in what God is wanting to do. <clears throat> the next one has to do with faith as fidelitas, <clears throat> faithfulness. It means being faithful to the covenant of God. Certainly that was a huge part of it for the, uh, our Jewish ancestors. It's a radical centering on God as North Star. I really like that. Uh, so it's deciding, you know, who is going to navigate our lives. It's covenantal. Uh, we love God, neighbor, and self as taught and modeled by Jesus. So that's sort of the whole point of it. Uh, and it has to do with being faithful and paying attention, uh, loving what God loves. Uh, we have a slogan around here called Go Be Jesus. Uh, it's down right now as we're rethinking our signage. Uh, but Go Be Jesus has been like our tagline uh, for many, many years. Uh, so what does it mean for us to go out into the world and be Jesus? And the opposite of this is idolatry. So I want to talk a little bit more about this and give you an example. Uh, sometimes uh, in Scripture we see the opposite of faithfulness as, um, as being uh, an infidel, as being uh, unfaithful, as in a husband and a wife. And this shows up uh, even in one of the prophets. A whole storyline is created around it. 
But what God is after, he's not trying to beat the drum on adultery here as much as he's trying to say uh, that there is a relationship between Israel, the people that are talking about this story in relationship with God, and God's self. And repeatedly, the people of Israel fall out of relationship with God. And God says to uh, the people of Israel, and know in certain terms, you've been unfaithful to me. Now the reality is um, that couples who find themselves dealing uh, with this kind of infraction, um, you know, they really realize that the infraction itself didn't just happen overnight. That things develop over time to create the environment for such things to happen. And that's true in our relationship with God. You don't just wake up on Tuesday and say, that's it, I'm agnostic, or that's it, I'm an atheist. Things happen along the way to erode our faith, our relationship with God. And that is a really key point for us to think about. Because if this thing is relationally based, which it is, then we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we getting to know God through the things that God is enjoying or what God is about? So a little story about myself. I've shared this before, so why not share it again? So uh, my wife and I, um, in many ways, are opposites. And the Enneagram, which uh, we talk about around here, uh, which gives you an insight into your personality, I don't think there's any Enneagram scholar that would suggest that Lynn and I get married. <laughs> because we're just the opposite. Uh, I am willing to take risks. I'm willing to stick my neck out there, as you know. And Lynn's type is much more um, diligent, much more careful about things like that. Uh, her radar is set uh, to sensitivity, uh, to, to look for threat. That's par partly how she's wired, which is really helpful in the world because it means that you know, she smells threat long before it comes. And I usually don't know that I've been bit until long after the fact, and then I'm in trouble. Um, so we're opposites in that way, and we've learned to navigate and uh, be together and learn from each other in that way and grow together. But also, in terms of our interests, we're different. Uh, one of Lynn's favorite memories is uh, she grew up in Emporia, Kansas. She'd go home on a Sunday afternoon and watch Kansas City Royals baseball. It was generally not a very pleasing experience being Kansas City Royals fans, but I digress. Uh, she would, the reason she loved it is not only did she love baseball, but she loved sitting on the couch with her dad and watch baseball. And my father-in-law is a sports nut. Uh, he, he knows, <laughs> if you see him, if he makes it out here again, um, you'll just have to ask him, just approach him and say, who won uh, the World Series in 1947? Or pick any date you want. And he will tell you from memory who won every World Series. That's the kind of sports nut he is. Uh, and Lynn uh, got all of that uh, from him. So she's a sports nut. I'm a sports fan. She's a sports nut. You know, you understand the difference, right? So she's, she's almost in heaven right now uh, because we have uh, playoff basketball. Uh, we've got the beginning of baseball. If we could somehow throw football in there, uh, it would make it all complete. Well... I grew up in a household where my dad uh, would watch uh, Sunday afternoon sports, mainly to help him fall asleep as he's sort of reading the paper at the same time. <laughs> and we would walk by and hear him snoring and make our way out. I grew up uh, with two older sisters who were in control of the remote and our downstairs TV, and they never watched sports. And so I was stuck uh, with whatever they were picking. And you know what they picked? Doris Day movies. <laughs> right. Musicals, that kind of stuff. So I know lots of musicals, 
And that's what I learned. And so I was in musicals and I was in theater and all that stuff. So I know a lot of that stuff, which Lynn knew nothing about. So when we got together, um, it was an interesting mix. She'd never dated a music guy. I'd never dated a jock. And so here we are, and um, away we go. Uh, well, what we've had to learn uh, over the years uh, is to, if we wanted to get along, uh, we wanted to, uh, for both of us, uh, stretch into the other. So if I want to have some time with Lynn where I'm enjoying what she's enjoying, it means that I'm going to learn to love baseball more than I would have if Lynn was not in my life. So now I watch a lot more Giants games <laughs> than I would have otherwise, or Warriors games, or Niners games, or Kansas City Chiefs, or, or what have you, um, because of her. And I want to do it because it's time that we're together. It's entertaining. It's, I enjoy it. I am a fan. I'm not a nut still, but I'm a fan. And so I'm going to have a good time with my wife on the couch. And she has learned to do the same thing. Uh, she has become a person who enjoys theater. Uh, my daughter is a theater nut, and she's the one that, you know, bought me kind of the season pass thing so she and I could go to musicals, you know, half a dozen of them a year. And that's our thing, you know, daddy-daughter kind of thing. And on a few of those, Lynn comes along because she doesn't want to miss out, and she knows she's probably going to enjoy the show, you know, which she does. So that's kind of an example, I think, of how we do things with God. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, is our relationship with God in terms of doing things together, is it one-sided? Are we primarily focused on how is God joining us? Do we ever ask the question, how are we sitting on the couch with God? How are we tuning in to what God's interested in? You know what I'm saying? Because if most of our life and most of our bearing is just focused on, well, this is what I'm doing. God, come along with me if you want. That's only going to get us so far. Now, God will be with us. God cannot not be with you because God is everywhere all the time. But if we really want to enrich our faith and grow deeper, there has to come a point where we ask the question, how am I, how am I getting on the couch with God? How am I taking the hike with God? How am I attending the game with God? How am I going to the musical with God? How am I traveling with God so that I can get to, God, get to know God more fully? And you may ask, well, how in the world would we know what that is? Well, look at the things that God cares about. Through the frame of Jesus or the whole arc of, of the Bible, and you're going to find out that God really cares about other people and really wants to see the world be a better place. So one way, just next week, that you might want to get to know God better is uh, since Earth Day is next weekend, maybe one thing you do as a good steward of creation is you devote some time that day. And talk to Pam after service, perhaps, about uh, ways we might uh, do that. It might be skipping service next week to go uh, be part of a project that's happening in Napa to clean up different areas. I'm totally cool with that. You get a free pass next week uh, to go skip church if it means you're cleaning up something uh, on Earth Day with other people. Uh, maybe it's uh, helping people that are really struggling uh, financially or with food or whatever, and you're somehow a part of that. Maybe it's somebody you know in your life really needs an ear, and you're busy, and you don't really want to give that person an ear uh, because you've got plenty of stuff to fill your time, but you know that that person needs somebody to talk to, needs somebody just to listen, not have all the answers, but just be there. Well, God's already there, and God's heart breaks for those kinds of things. 
And so maybe that's what you're called to do. I love, um, uh, Keith was sharing yesterday in men's Bible study, he's that random flute sound you were hearing on that, uh, that first song, which was a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, you know, Keith shared yesterday that in retirement, um, he's playing some gigs and stuff, and he, he found out that you could play at a convalescent home or a nursing home. Uh, and so he went one time uh, just to get his feet in the, in the water and start playing. I might be butchering the story, but I'm pretty much going to get it. Uh, and he, he started asking, you know, how many other musicians come and play for the residents here? He found out pretty much nobody was showing up. And so Keith now, um, because of his heart, uh, shows up once a week, twice a week. I can't say how many fingers. Four times a week. Uh, eight times, no, four times a week. <laughs> Uh, at the convalescent home to play music, uh, to play some tunes and play his sax and his flute. And you know what? He's made the days much brighter in those spaces just by using his gifts in the space uh, that really needs it. And as he attested in our breakfast yesterday, not only uh, is he playing his music and keeping that sharp, but he's getting to know these people, people that often aren't visited, often aren't given much attention, now he's developing relationships with folks uh, who really, really need it. And my guess is, and I actually know this because he's mentioned it, that Keith is the biggest beneficiary of that. That his heart is enlarging because he has chosen to love what and who God loves. How are we loving what God loves? It's really, really key. Another way to think about faith is faith as visio. Yeah. Uh, it's a way of seeing what is, and there are three different ways of seeing what is. The first way is that the world is hostile and threatening. A lot of people in the world view it this way. There's a softer rendition of it, and that is that the world is indifferent and uncaring. Uh, if you watch too much news uh, throughout your day, this is how you're going to feel by the end of the day, because you're mainly going to hear bad news. Uh, when you are focused on this, uh, security is a chief concern because you're sure that the wheels are going to come off the bus any minute. You have kind of a jaded perspective on people. Uh, you don't trust people. Uh, you're not going to be particularly loving toward people because that's risky. You're more likely to be hoarding than you are generous uh, because you're not sure you know, if, it's, if it's okay or you're not sure what's going to happen next Friday that could take it all away. So you better just hold on tight. You're that way with your relationships, with your beliefs. Uh, in extreme, uh, the apocalypse could happen on next weekend, uh, before planet Earth Day. And so, you know, who cares about saving the world because I just want to make sure that I'm okay. Well, these two ways of seeing are not the way that Jesus saw the world. Uh, Jesus saw the world in a much more beautiful way. The way Jesus saw the world is this, that the world is life-giving, nourishing, and gracious. When you really believe that the world is life-giving, nourishing, and gracious, and by the way, it is. It is. Go take a walk outside. Go wiggle your toes in the grass. Go spend some time at the ocean. The world is life-giving. It's still here. <laughs> Notice what is right in front of you. Everybody look at your skin. Everybody see your, look at your own skin. Don't judge it. This is not the skin you were born with. This is not the skin you had two weeks ago. It is, <laughs> it, it is ever changing. Ever changing. I had one friend creeped me out. He said, you know all that dust in your house? 
It's skin. Thanks, Corey. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So get that vacuum out and appreciate the fact that you are that busy shedding your skin that your house is filled with dust, right? But it's amazing. It's extraordinary. You're breathing air uh, that the world has helped make safe for you. Uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, what we celebrate Easter, life, death, resurrection, happens all the time. It is the cycle, it is the perennial cycle of nature. Get on board with it. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. And you can trust it. It's a way of seeing the world that is hopeful, beautiful, redemptive, because it causes us to hope for the best in other people and trust that God is somehow in the mix. And when we have this uh, way of thinking, it leads to a radical uh, trust. It leads to a freedom to be generous. And it brings us to purpose and joy. And it really does. This is why Jesus said, you know, when you're freaking out and you're all worried about stuff, he said, consider the, consider the lilies of the field. Um, they're, not, they're not stressed out. Uh, consider the birds in the air. They're not fretting like you are. And it does us good to take pause and just notice this stuff. When was the last time you went outside and just shut up for a while and stopped and listened? You'll be amazed what you hear. Wind. <laughs> Birds. Bugs. Bees. Harley Davidsons. <laughs> do it and don't delay because when we do that we find out that we're a part of an incredibly rich abundant life that is happening all around us and we're a part of it we're not separate from it and somehow some way that does something for us it reconnects us it grounds us when we're so busy that we don't notice the teeming life all around us we find ourselves dying a little bit more every day so my question for you is what kind of faith uh, would you like to develop? Uh, the faith as a census, which is ascent, which you know, just want to have more uh, dogma to learn, or trust, or faithfulness, or vision. I, want to do, I do want to talk about one thing, or one general thing, about a census-worthy principles. And it has to do with how you think about God. I'm reading a, Thomas Ord's uh, latest book. Uh, it's called um, The Death of Omnipotence and the birth of amipotence. And he does a fascinating thing in his book, kind of like he did with Pure Form Love, uh, where uh, he decided uh, to take a look at the original language of the Bible and see um, what the Bible meant when it talked about the almightiness of God. When we think about God is in control and God's got it all handled and all this stuff, which you've probably learned. Do you know that that rendering of God being almighty or God being omnipotent does not exist in the Bible even though your English translations give you words that say almighty if you go back to the original Greek and the original Hebrew they're not talking about that kind of controlling person and yet that's how many of us were born and raised to believe that God is an absolute control God can do whatever God wants God is allowing evil, but God could stop at any second because God is that powerful. But that idea itself is a modern idea, if you can believe it. But it's there if we just do the digging and 
follow after diggers like Tom uh, who figure this stuff out. Realizing that that has been a lie that we thought was bedrock, that alone makes a huge difference. And Tom Ward would go on further and he'd say, you know, we have a choice to make and this is, this is an ascent worthy thing, I think to determine, well, what is the character and nature of this greater other that we call God? Is it, is, it, is it power, or is it something better than power? And Ord, and I agree, and I think this is certainly what Jesus said, is that the defining nature of God, the present, whatever that is, whoever that is, the defining nature is love. And if you really, really believe that, that you are deeply loved, and you, I mean, you really, really believe it, that will change your life. That's where I disagree with Borg. Some principles can change your life, particularly if you are a human being and you were raised by human beings who didn't do a fantastic job at making sure that you knew that you were absolutely, without a doubt, unconditionally loved, that you had inherent value, that you're supported, and that you're beautifully and wonderfully made. Every single human being in this room has struggled to believe this because we're in a world of humans and we were raised by humans. To varying degrees we struggle, but if you can believe what Jesus modeled and taught with his life, that God is love. And that the very source of life itself is loving and kind toward us, not the judgmental jerk God that is so popularized and somehow makes people feel good and safe, somehow makes people feel safe. But the primary characteristic of God is love. You can't screw that up. Well, then what does that say about who you are and your value? And then how does that motivate you for what you do? And the beautiful thing about this, if you, can, if you can sign off on that, and I have, even though I fight it because I live in this world and I want to not believe it because other things in this world question that, but, I, but when my, in my shiniest moments, uh, when, I, when I really nail that, it leads into the other pieces because the other pieces, trust, faithfulness, and vision, are all relational aspects of faith, which is what faith is meant to be in the first place not just some dogma that we learn, but a real dynamic relationship with this greater other we call God. You are in relationship with God. Did you know that? Even if you don't believe that God exists, even if you say, I am not in relationship with God, I refuse to be in relationship with God, you can't not be because you're breathing, you're living. There's a part of you that resonates deeply with God and you know what if you're one of those that rejects the very notion God's love for you is great enough that God is fine letting you be in that space for as long as you need to be which may be the rest of your life it's not God's dream for you because God's dream would be find relationship with me find out what love can do for you at its deepest level and that's what these other things are all about Trusting is relational. Faithfulness is how we work out that relation. And vision is a relationship thing about how we live out this thing with God. They're all relational uh, dimensions. And the final thing I want to say is I love what Borg says here at the end of his chapter. He says that really uh, for, for Christians, believing in God is to be loving God. That believing is really, at the end of the day, be loving. Be loving God, 
be loving our neighbors, whoever that is, and be loving ourselves. We're, we have a hard time in, in a lot of Christian churches loving ourselves. It feels like idolatry. But you're denying God's creation if you don't love yourself. It doesn't mean you're a narcissist if you take time for you and help yourself become holy. That is the right thing, or whole. <laughs> That's really the best way to think about holiness is becoming more whole. When you love yourself, you make it possible for you to love others and God more fully. It's maybe the best thing that you can do. I don't know uh, how God is messing with you uh, throughout this uh, talk, um, but I'd like to take just a moment of quiet, uh, and we can close our eyes a bit just to let the Spirit do the Spirit's thing in our lives, and then we'll repeat a, uh, we'll say out loud a prayer um, that is a model of the Lord's Prayer written by a guy named John Cotter. So let me lead you through a brief time of quiet. So, Spirit of God, I trust that you are here. I trust, I have faith that you are present. I believe uh, that you are good and loving. I sign off on that core radical principle that you love everyone here absolutely equally, without condition, and you always will. I thank you, God, that you have been faithful to us. That you, you're always there even when we don't know it. Your mercies really are new every morning. And we choose, we choose to see the world through your lens, not as uh, through a lens of scarcity and threat, even though there are areas of the world that seem scarce or scarcity exists and there are threats that are looming. We choose to see the world bigger than that, more beautiful than that, more filled with your presence than that. And trusting that, I trust that you're messing with us right now. Spirit of God, what do we need to hear today? So Crosswalk, just take a moment, breathe, check in. What is sticking with you? What idea or thought is sticking with you? Why do you think that thing is sticking with you? And what do you think the invitation is to do in response to that thing that's sticking? What do you sense you need to do in response? God, I pray that our sense of faith has been enlarged that we can let go of such a small notion of faith as just signing off on doctrine and dogma. That while that has its place, it is so not what the point is. May we start wondering what it means uh, to truly trust that you are present and around and moving, to truly wonder how we can join you on the couch to watch the game, or how we can join you at the theater or be with you on the hike, or whatever the thing might be. What it might mean to live with eyes of Jesus and viewing the world, and what that would do to us. May our faith be enlarged and enlivened because of this. To that end, we pray this prayer. 
a rendition of the prayer that Jesus taught us. We'll be doing this throughout the rest of the series. So let's just say it together. Eternal Spirit, Earth Maker, Pain Bearer, Life Giver, Source of all this is and that shall be, Father and Mother of us all, Loving God in whom is heaven, the hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. In the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. And from the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love now and forever. Amen. Thanks for coming. Hope you had a great experience. And we will see you next week.